so glad to be here today. I love this age of all you guys in here, and I love the stage that you're in. I know how hard it is, and I, I don't blame you for being here. I mean, two hours, childcare, five bucks. What? I don't blame you one bit. Um, the title of my talk today is, Does God Give Do-Overs in Parenting? And another title for it might be, Things I Wish I'd Done Differently. So, um, who am I, and why am I talking to you here today? Um, Three years ago, my husband and I started the prodigal ministry here at Watermark, as Holly said, and um, it's based on the book in uh, Luke 15 about the lost son, and uh, probably you guys know the story about the father who had the two sons, and the younger son comes to him and says, give me my inheritance, and I'm going to take it, and I want to go, and... He wanted to go, you know, live the wildlife, party, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. And the father gave him the money and he went. And, of course, as you know, he squandered all the money, you know, partied and realized he was eating with the pigs and said, gosh, my dad's servants are eating better than me. I'm going to go back home. He he reached his bottom, basically, is what we say. He came to the bottom and, and realized that that was not the life that he wanted. So he goes back home. The father opens him, I mean, welcomes him with open arms, fills the fat, kills the fatted calf, and they celebrate. Well, there are many meanings to this story, and basically I think that that parable, what God wants us to know from that is that he desires all to come to him. He, he doesn't want anyone to be lost. He desires all to come to him with a saving faith. But um, in the prodigal ministry, it has great meaning to our parents that come every Tuesday night because um, they need hope. They need hope. And what we tell them every Tuesday night is we want to give them hope in the midst of their chaos. Because anytime you have a prodigal, a lot of times it's an addict. In your family, whether it's a child, brother, and sister, most of the people we see are it's parents who have children that are making really poor choices. And they're either into drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever. They're just heading down a path of destruction. So um, we tell them that there's hope in the midst of the chaos, and we tell them that that hope is in Jesus Christ, and that's where you're going to find that hope. And um, so every Tuesday night they come to hopefully get some of that cup. Well, I want to tell you, that didn't advance. Oh, I want to tell you a little bit about my story so that it might shed a little bit of light on kind of what I'm talking about today. So bear with me while I tell you a little bit about my story and, first of all, my life before Christ. I was born in a loving home, into a loving home, the youngest of three girls. That's my family. I'm the little one up there. Was raised in the Christian Science Church, and I don't, you probably don't know a lot about that, and my parents weren't Christian scientists, but my grandmother was a devout Christian scientist. And basically what I learned, the premise being that God made everything, he made everything good, so if it's not good, it's not real. That's real convenient because that meant, didn't it, that sin's not real because it's not good. So I, I grew up very moral. I was a good girl, very moral. You know, I thought, that, I thought that being good, there were three things. You know, you didn't cuss, you didn't have sex before you're married, and you didn't drink before you were of age. And I check, check, check all of those. So I was really, really good. Okay. So I wasn't a sinner in my eyes. And I had a friend that used to take me to First Baptist downtown and I would go to her church and I'd hear, I'd hear them say, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. And, and it just never made sense to me. I'm, I, I didn't get it. I was like, oh, well, number one, I didn't have to die for me. I'm not a sinner. And it just didn't make sense. I had no basic knowledge of that. I grew up knowing about God, but I really didn't know anything about Jesus. Um, so I go, to fast forward a little bit, I, I went to Baylor, and that's where I met my husband, Jay. Um, we got married after I graduated, and he had finished his first year of medical school. And then three, la- three years later, um, we moved to Salt Lake City, where he did his general surgery residency. And um, that's Salt Lake City. That's the hospital where he worked, and it's a beautiful place. But one thing I have to tell you is all I ever wanted to be was a wife and a mommy. I wanted to be a mommy so bad. I love babies. It's just, I mean, God's just given me this incredible desire to just love on babies. And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to have six kids. That was what I wanted. But we get to Salt Lake City, and I get pregnant. I get pregnant pretty easily. And at 18 weeks, 
um, they can't hear the heartbeat anymore. So um, I go in, and I have to have a DNC, and I lose that baby. And they said, you know, that was just a fluke. Try again. So I did three months later, and um, I got pregnant again, and I'm 24 weeks, and I'm feeling movement, and I'm, you know, everything's good. I'm a little nervous. And then all of a sudden, there's no heartbeat. And so I have to deliver that baby. That was really, really hard. You know, your mothers, you know how hard that was. And, and I wanted babies so bad. And I was at that stage in my life where everyone was having their babies. And I couldn't have a baby. And I was really angry at God. Because remember, I thought, wait a minute, God. Remember, I'm that good girl. I did all these good things. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And this isn't supposed to happen to me. And that was what I thought. I thought... If you're good, only good things are going to happen to you. And God must have made a mistake here. You know, something's wrong. So he was basically changing the steps of my little, very planned out little life of having my little six kids and everything's perfect. Um, I love Proverbs 16, 9, where it says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Boy, was I seeing that. And I wasn't even a believer at the time. Remember, I was just good. But um, at that time, we were in Salt Lake City. And they tested me and realized what I had. And what I had was this autoimmune disease called lupus anticoagulant. I didn't have lupus. But what happened when I was pregnant was my veins and arteries in the placenta clotted off and just cut off the blood and oxygen supply to the babies. They were normal babies, but I was clotting off their blood and oxygen supply. So it was horrible. But here's the cool thing. Even when I wasn't walking with God, he was so taking care of me. The only place in the country at that time that they were doing a study on what I had was where I was, in Salt Lake City, Utah. So they enrolled me in this. If I'd have been anywhere else in the country, they would have just said, don't know, keep trying, you know, we don't know. And I would have probably just kept losing babies. But they enrolled me in the study because I, I had this thing. And um, so about that time, we get a call from um, a doctor here in Garland where my husband had grown up and his brother was an attorney and he knew this doctor. And he called him and said, we've got this baby and I think this is going to be a good baby, um, good prenatal care. This mom's 17 and she wants to finish high school and go to college. And um, so my husband, you know, I'm the one that I wasn't really open to adoption at the time because I said, Dad, come on, I want to have a baby. I just want to have babies. But my husband, God really worked in my husband's heart, and my husband said, that's our baby. I want that baby. And I said, okay, great. So we fly to Dallas, and we get our son when he's two days old, straight from the hospital. And when they laid him in my arms, I mean, he was just, I was in heaven. I had a baby. He was mine. And, you know, about six months later, um, or no, not even six months, three or four months later, we're sending pictures home, and our parents are calling back going, he's kind of dark. He's a little dark. Do you think, do you, was she Indian? Was she, what, what, you, did you get the wrong baby? Because birth mother was Caucasian, and she said birth father was blonde hair and blue eyed. Not so much. Um, Hunter was biracial, and we don't know, you know, why she said that. We don't know if she didn't know, or if she just didn't want her parents to know what, but he was the most beautiful baby, and he could have been purple polka-dotted when they laid him in my arms. And he was just, he was mine, and he was precious. Six months, six and a half months later, I delivered, in the study, and taking prednisone and a baby from the ugliest pregnant woman you've ever seen, I delivered our daughter, Molly, who was premature. So I had two babies six and a half months apart, so you need to feel sorry for me on that. So... <laughs> This is our little family when we're, my babies were young. Molly was about, I guess she was about a year there. And that's our precious little boy. And he was the cutest little thing you've ever seen and the sweetest little thing. And she was, she was really my two-year little one. But anyway, so um, I want to tell you a little bit now about how I came to know Christ. Um, this is a really cool story. And this is my kids when they were little. So we, when my kids were about one and a half and two, we moved back to Dallas and we started going to Northwest Bible Church. And because I was, you know, I was a good mother and because I was good, you know, and I wanted to be very involved and I wanted my kids to go to church. I wanted them to go to vacation Bible school. I never did when I was little, but I wanted to, I wanted to volunteer in vacation Bible school. So, um, I go for my little training on how we're supposed to teach the gospel to these little kids. And this doesn't say much for my intellectual capacity, but when they explained the gospel to me, how we're supposed to teach it to little children, it finally made sense to me. And, and it was so cool because I had 
have no foundational basis. You know, the way that I grew up in the church I grew up, I, I didn't have the basics. So when they explained it to me for, on that level, and I just want to tell you that, that if you know someone that is not a believer, or if you're not, don't be afraid to, you know, to, to go get down and say, or if you don't know it, say, I don't understand the basics here. Because I didn't, and nobody ever went that low with me. So anyway, um, so Vacation Bible School was was really, it was a great thing. I had to understand basically what sin was. I didn't know what sin was because I, like I said, I thought, I thought it was what I, you know, those, those vices. But um, I love this verse in Titus 3, 5, that he saved us because of righteous things we, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And I finally learned that. And in Matthew, it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. We can't be perfect. God's, God's standard is perfection, and we can never be that. That's why Jesus died for us, because we couldn't meet that standard. So he paid that penalty for us, because there, there are consequences to sin. And I was actually excited to know that I was a sinner. It was kind of cool to know that I was a sinner, like everybody else. Um, so anyway, just take that to heart. So, um, so my life after accepting Christ, I'm going to um, fast forward a little bit. And my kids, we're back in Dallas, and we're living, you know, the good life. We're in the Park Cities, and my kids are in high school at this point. And they're very involved in high school, and we're very involved with our kids. My husband uh, at that point is in um, his practice. Um, He's a plastic surgeon. And uh, we are uh, very involved. Our kids are, you know, Hunter is an incredible athlete. He's like basketball star. He was like captain of the basketball team junior and senior year, my daughter. But he wasn't good in academics. He struggled really bad in academics. And she was kind of the opposite. She was great student, great girl, very moral. And, um, but she was not real athletic, although she was a cross-country captain, but real, real slow. So, um, and, and I just want to say, too, that I mean, she was. I mean, she would be okay with me telling you that she was, she was the slowest one, but she's a real encourager. So... Um, I want to tell you, too, that my husband, so many times, you know, you think, you hear, you know, doctor's kids, that doctors never, you know, never are their kids. My husband was one of the most involved dads. I mean, he planned his schedule, his surgery schedule, his patient schedule around kids' activities. He didn't miss a game. He didn't miss a recital. He didn't miss anything. He was very involved. We were both very involved, and and he was a great dad, and um, my kids were in the same grade and in high school, and... um, we started noticing about mm, sophomore year, junior year, uh, some changes in our son, um, some behaviors. I started, um, I, and I, I just want to interject one thing here. Our son, part of my I can't tell my story without telling my son's story. And my son allows us to tell his story at this point in hopes that it might help someone else. Um, that is his desire. Because um, I don't want you to think that I'm, telling these things and he doesn't know he knows exactly what I'm telling and he is happy for you to know if it can help anyone so um, we start noticing I start finding um, uh, lighters I start finding visine all over the place I'm thinking "Mm, don't know about that I start finding um, some really uh, music that I don't like I remember one time sitting listening to some of the music he had and I just cried and I just I just cried and said, Satan, you know, you cannot have my son. Um, it, it was horrible stuff. Um, I, found, I started finding bongs, and I didn't even know what it was because, you know, I was the good girl. I didn't do anything like that. But I've, I would, God would just lead me to things that I would find. And, and then we found pot. And um, we knew, I mean, you know, we confronted that, and, and we talked about that and all. But um, anyway, it... We didn't know the extent of it at all. So um, graduated from high school. My son graduated. Probably shouldn't have because he, you know, we were getting the calls that, you know, he wasn't at school. Where is he? He skipped classes. His grades were tanking. It was bad. It was bad. And um, so he graduated, and then both of our kids went off to college. Molly went off to Baylor, and Hunter went to a place in, in Missouri called Westminster, which was a place for kids with ADD. He had some learning differences, and he was going to play basketball there. Well, his, that's where he got addicted to cocaine, was there. And um, we got a call one time from the coach, and they, you know, suspected drugs, blah, blah, blah. Well, he was heavy into that, and so he flunked out, and he came home. And so what do you do then? Um, our happy little family wasn't so happy anymore. I mean, it, it, it was stressful. It was uh, one of the most, the whole 
the whole time, not just this point, but the whole going through that with him was one of the hardest things we've ever been through. I don't want to make light of that. It's, it was tough. Um, so we, we, what do we do at this point? We're, we're kind of at the end of our rope, so we have an intervention. And our pastor, this was years ago, and our pastor, Todd, who's a friend of ours, and Dean McFarland, who's an elder here, came and helped us with it. And uh, we brought him home. He was at Kids Across America doing an internship, doing video stuff. And, but we realized that he'd been home for Easter, and we found out from a friend that he had done cocaine when he was home. So he was still, he, he had not, he was, he was an addict. He was addicted to it. So we had to um, give him a choice. We had an intervention. And I'll never forget sitting at Starbucks on Hillcrest, and Dean and Todd were, were there, and, and they said to us, you guys are going to have to do some hard things. And are you willing to sand over your son's grave? And I just looked at him and, and my husband went, yeah. And I just, I said, you didn't ask me. No, you know, I'm not. You know, I was scared to death because what he said was, if you don't do these hard things, your son could die. If you, if you do these things, if you don't do these things and you continue to enable him to allow him to do these things, he could die. And then his blood's on your shoulders. And that just hit us. And we went home that night, and we just cried, and we cried, and we cried. And we called and got a Greyhound bus ticket for him to come home the next day from Missouri on the Greyhound bus, and we would pick him up. And he was angry. You know, why are you doing this? We brought him home, and basically we gave him a choice. And we said, we have a choice for you. You can either walk out this door with the clothes on your back, no phone, no truck, no money, the clothes on your back, what we love you. Or the other choice is we have a ticket for you to fly to Montana to go to Wilderness Treatment Center to get help because you got problems. And because Hunter is such a tender-hearted man, he is, he's always, his heart's been his greatest asset always. He's so sweet, and he loved us, and he wanted to please us. So even though he continued to say, I do not have a problem. I smoked a little pot. I don't have a problem. Please don't make me go. I will step in my room. He, he tried everything, but, but he said, I'll go. So we send him off to Wilderness. Here we are. This is our family week at Wilderness. He's a little scruffy here because when you're, when you're doing drugs, when he got there, he tested positive for cocaine and marijuana. Um, so he's, he's pretty scruffy. He's, he's a real disheveled. But we're there, and we are in family week. And I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but it's one of the most intense weeks I've ever had in my life. So um, he stays there for three months and goes from there to a halfway house for several months in Louisiana where he gets a job and starts learning. uh, He has to get a job. He's required to do certain things, learns his trade, basically, which is computers. Um, Comes back to Dallas after that, relapses with cocaine, goes through an outpatient treatment. um, And then things start getting better because at that point we have let go. We have, there's no support from us at that point. We've, you're on your own. And um, he starts getting better because of that and got a job. um, And he's making progress at that time and, you know, staying sober. And then the best part is last September, he married this girl who is an answer to prayer. Um, this is one of the most wonderful women I know. She's a, a godly woman. It makes me cry to think about it. You know how you pray for, you're praying now for your son's um, wife. And God answered this prayer so beautifully. She is, she's a believer. And, um, oh God, I've never done that. <laughs> but anyway, it was a joyous event. Um, total answer to prayer. You know, does he still struggle? He's an addict. It's one day at a time when you've got an addiction. But they are, he is seeking the Lord and he is working and they are grounded and they went through merge here at Watermark. And so we are very happy with that. So, um, and and then I want to just finish this off with a little bow that my daughter graduated from Baylor, went to medical school. She's doing her residency here in dermatology. And again, she's getting married to a wonderful man at the end of this month. So um, I want to tell you that every Tuesday night here up on the third floor of the tower, we meet with those hurting parents in prodigal. Um, and what we see is transformation, not in their prodigal, but in them, because we can't control what their prodigal does. We can only control what we do and how we handle it. And we can control how how we relate to the Lord. Um, these are two of the verses we use in our ministry so often, and it's kind of hard to hear. Um, but Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. 
And this is the, the main one we use, isn't it? 71. It was good for me to be afflicted that, so that I might learn your decrees. And believe it or not, at this point where we are in our life, we, we truly live that. We see so much good in what we went through with our son. We would not be where we are now. We would not be humbled. We would think that we were, if, if we just had our daughter, we would think we were awesome parents and you would have to step over our pearls of wisdom to get to us because we had done such a good job. But, you know, not so much the case. But um, I just want to, I just want to, again, reiterate that going through that with our son, and it started at a fairly young age. I will say behavior started at a young age. Lying, um, you know, the things that, you know, stealing, lying, just a lot of hurt. It hurts to be lied to. Um, no trust. Um, fear, a lot of fear. I remember, you know, always wondering when the phone rang if it's he's dead or he's in jail. You just never know. So, it's a tough time. Lots of tears. Um, it's a time when you've got to trust God. And um, these verses helped a ton. Um, but what you really want to know from me is what can I do so that I don't have to go through what you went through? Because I don't want to do that. And I don't blame you. But let me just tell you, there are no guarantees. Um, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We truly, truly believe that God gave us our son, um, even though, I mean, I think he blinded us. We didn't know he was biracial. We might not have knowingly done that, but he wanted him to be ours. And we are so thankful that he did because he's been such a, such a huge part of our family and of our story and of our relationship with the Lord and how he grew. So I just want to tell you, there are no guarantees. I hope that none of you have a prodigal. I hope we don't see any of you on Tuesday nights, ever. But, you know, we raised our kids in a Christian home. They were in Bible study. We, we put them in any activity we could to grow their faith. And, you know, the first time that I was with my son having him drug tested, we did the hair thing. Um, I'll never forget sitting there. And I said... If you had told me five years ago that I would be sitting here having my child tested for drugs, I would have said, you are crazy. Not my child. I have taught my children. This is wrong. You don't do this. You know, no. But here I was. Here I was. And, you know, God did have a plan. And I want to tell you a little bit. I'm going to talk to you about some things I wish I'd done differently. But I want you to understand that I do not feel responsible for the choices that my son made and for the, the bad choices he made. I do not feel guilty. I feel conviction. And there's a difference. And I want to tell you a little bit what that is. Guilt looks backward. And it leads to worldly sorrow, which leads to death. I don't feel guilty. Conviction looks forward. And it leads to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. And that's where I am. So please understand that. That We don't ever tell our our prodigal parents, it's your fault. It's not your fault if if one of your children do that, as long as you are obedient to the Lord. But in light of that, some things I wish I had done differently. Um, One of the things that I think I'd wish I'd done differently is I wish I'd had a personal mission statement. This is one of the things we ask our parents to do now. And if you, you, you probably have never heard of this. I hadn't heard of this before. But it's kind of what's your purpose in life. It's a statement of your purpose that guides all your thoughts, your plans, and your actions. It's, it's having the end in mind. It's how do you want to be remembered. How do you, what do you want them to say about you at your funeral, basically? Look at the end product and how do you want that to look like? Um, what's your purpose in life? And you have to admit that parenting would look different, wouldn't it? If your purpose in life was to be the best mom you could be, to make sure that your children were happy all the time and they never failed, then if your purpose in life was to glorify God in all things. Parenting would look different, wouldn't it, in those two things. So what is our main goal for our children? Uh, In the prodigal ministry, we, we say, when we look at it a little differently, our main goal for our children is it not that we want our children to be walking with the Lord. We want them to live under his authority in obedience to him, living responsibly. Isn't that what we all want for our kids? Isn't that what our goal is? Um, I don't know if back then that was my goal. Um, 
I think our priorities changed when we had a prodigal. It, no longer were we concerned with where our child was going to college or what internship they were going to do. We were worried about getting, you know, dead and being dead in a drug deal. Um, and we knew that our son's only hope was a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes the things you have to do when you're going through this with a, an addict or a prodigal looks cruel to the world. Um, it looks unloving. But what we found from studying God's word is that it's really the most loving thing you can do. Um, so I wish that I had, I had done that. I wish that I had had a purpose and lived my life that way and parented with a purpose. Parent with a purpose. Um, because really what God wants for us to do as parents is to raise God-fearing adults, responsible adults, right? Um, not, not children so that I look good as a mother. That's not what he wants. That's not his concern. Um, I should have parented with the, with the mission of glorifying God. Um, the other thing I wish I'd done is I wish I had, had set boundaries and followed through on consequences. And if I could tell you one thing, that's, to me, that's one of the most important things. I love this. This is a card I found. I gave it to my niece. And this is, to me, a mom who needs some boundaries. She says, bottom line, I'm exhausted. The house is a wreck. And, of course, Jeff doesn't help at all. I'm just so sick of it all. What? Oh, yes, please, extra cheese. She needs some boundaries. She's at the end of a rope. She, you, know, you know what it's like. You've got little kids. Um, so... What's a boundary? When I was raising my kids, that was just a buzzword. You guys probably know all about it. And if you haven't read the Boundaries books by Townsend and Cloud, they are so awesome. Boundaries with kids. Boundaries with teens is my favorite, and it's really good. We use it in prodigals so much. But um, what is a boundary? And I want to tell you a little bit about what I've learned about what a boundary is. Um, When you know who you are, what you're for, what you're against, what you love, what you hate, what you will allow, what you won't allow, where you end and others begin, you have set a boundary. In the physical world, it's much more evident. We have boundaries everywhere, don't we? The highways have boundaries. The um, states have borders that tells where this state starts and this state ends. Football fields, soccer fields, they have boundaries. And isn't there a consequence if you catch that ball outside that boundary? You don't get credit for it. Fences divide our property lines. That's what a boundary is. That's the physical world. It's just as important in the spiritual world. It's just not quite as defined. Um, Boundaries define us. What's me and what's you? The main thing boundaries do is what am I responsible for and what are you responsible for? Think of that in parenting. What are you responsible for? What's your child responsible for? Um, Why is it so important? Why are these so important? Let me tell you what I've learned. If you don't back up your boundaries with consequences, there's no change in behavior. To me, this is one of the most important concepts in parenting that we have to get your utmost goal, if that's to glorify God. And what is your utmost goal? You need to know that. Your purpose in life, what I talked about, your, your, your personal mission statement, will determine, it determines the boundaries you set, and it determines the consequences that you're going to allow or not allow. Um, I love Proverbs twenty nine nineteen. We use this a lot too. A servant cannot be corrected by mere words. Though he understands, he will not respond. You can talk and you can yell until you're blue in the face. And I know because I did it. That's, what, that's the way I did it. But until there's a consequence, there will be no change in behavior. Um, that's what I've learned. And I... I was a boundaryless parent. I didn't. Um, if your purpose is to glorify God, then consistent with that purpose would be to, again, raise God-fearing adults, raise responsible adults, set boundaries, enforce consequences if rules are broken and responsibilities aren't met. Um, when you do everything for your child, they become dependent on you. Now, I know that when you've got little bitties, you have to do things for them. I'm talking about when they get older, when they can do some things for themselves. They become dependent on you. And then even as teenagers, when, when you do that, when you are doing everything for them, which I, I did that kind of, I was that, I was the controlling, I can do it, mom, and let, just let me do it because I can do it better. So um, when you do that, you become very responsible. You're responsible, and I was very responsible, but I was miserable. And my child is totally irresponsible, and they're perfectly happy. What's wrong with that picture? 
that's just not right. And, and I lived that. That is exactly what I did. So how do we set boundaries? Well, number one, we say no. And I know you say no all day long. And sometimes we say no, and then we go, oh, well, you know, whatever. But um, Matthew 5.37 says simply, let your yes be yes and your no be yo. No. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. No is no. You know, and I know you guys, I'm preaching to the choir, you know all this, but I'm just, you know, doesn't hurt to hear it again. Um, follow biblical guidelines of right and wrong. And clearly define them and follow them. I will tell you that this book is the best parenting book out there. It's in there. All the answers are here. And I wish, too, that I'd been a student of the Proverbs because, oh, my gosh, the Proverbs is so rich for parenting, so rich. Um, I would read one, read a whole chapter every day if I were you. Um, Also, let them suffer the consequences of their actions. I was not good at that. And let them take responsibility for their actions. I was the rescuer. I was the one that when my son came to me um, on Sunday night and said, I've got that project due tomorrow and I don't have the stuff. And, and how long have you known about that? Two weeks? Uh, and you're just, now, you're just now doing it? Yeah, and I need this and this. And I was mad and I would say, I would read him the right act, but guess what I did? I jumped in the car and I ran to the store at 10 o'clock to get the supplies he needed, and I came back and stayed up probably till 2, helping him get the project done. And what a perfect opportunity, because, now let me tell you why I did that, because, heaven forbid, he should make a bad grade on that and then maybe flunk that class, because and if you flunk that class, you might not not be able to play basketball that six weeks, and oh my gosh, that's going to, the whole team will suffer then, and, and it's all on me at that point. And just, if I had that to do over, oh my gosh, how I wish I had just said, you know, darn, what are you going to do? Um, gosh, you know, he couldn't drive, you know, what are you going to do about that? Sorry, I bet you wish you'd thought about that earlier. You know, in hindsight, that's what I want to go back and, and have a do-over on that one. But no, I, I, um, you know, got it done for him. Rescue, rescue. So there I was, responsible, miserable. He was irresponsible and perfectly happy. Um, so where am I? Oh, this, I have to show you this because one of our prodigal leaders found this on the internet. This is my hero, boundary-setting parent. Because she says, you've missed curfew. Don't knock or ring the doorbell. You may sleep on the patio. I've been generous this time and provided a blanket. That's a parent that's setting boundaries and allowing consequences. That's what I wish I had done, but I didn't, you know? And that's what you need. You do that once, guys, and then next time he's going to think before he misses curfew. Is he not? It's cold on the patio. That's a consequence, and it's not going to kill him. It's not going to kill him. I love that. Um, And let me just say... Did I already tell you Proverbs 19, 29, 21, man, man pampers his ser- if a man pampers his servant from youth, he will bring grief in the end. Wow. Pamper your servant from youth, he'll bring grief in the end. I, I went through that. I went through that grief. Our, our goal here is not to control our kids, to get them to do what we want to do. Our goal is to give them a choice and make it so painful to make the wrong choice that they won't want to. That's, that's the whole point. That's, what, that's the, the grit of consequences. Um, what they do that with their lives as a result of us setting boundaries is their choice. There are no guarantees that they're not still going to make poor choices. But when you do this, you have been obedient to God, and you've done your part, what you need to do. The rest is God's. So learn from that. Um, one thing I want to tell you, <clears throat> original. Oh, what I want to tell you is I love these verses, Galatians 6 2 and 6 5. And what I want to tell you about is that these verses, the 6 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Well, in looking at that in commentaries, what that wording really means, you know, originally was that I think what they're talking about there is big boulders. You see the big boulder up there. He's talking about things that people can't do for themselves. Um, your little bitties can't put their shoes on by themselves. They can't tie their shoes. That's fulfilling the law of Christ. That's sacrificial love. They can't do that. I know you probably know Angela Andrews that goes to Watermark. She's blind. We all know her. And there are things that Angela cannot do. Angela cannot drive 
to the grocery store, the doctor by herself. She can't drive. She's blind. So when you take her and you help her, you're not enabling her. You're fulfilling the law of Christ because isn't that what Christ did for us? He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be perfect. So that is fulfilling the law. But when you look at 6.5, it says, For each one should carry his own load. And looking at the wording of that word load, we think that means like a backpack. I think what they're talking about there, what God means is daily responsibilities. That each one should be responsible for their daily responsibilities. You know, I shouldn't have said, I'll make your bed because I like the way I do it better. Let them make their own bed. Let them pick up their clothes. Pick up your toys. I liked the way I did it better, so I would do it. I was that mom. I was, it was horrible. Don't do what I did. So let them carry their own load. I, I just think that's more loving. In one of the Boundaries books, I can't remember which one it was, but they, they talked about this study they did, and I thought this was so interesting, but they told these little preschoolers in the, to go out and play in this yard, and there was no fence out there. And um, so they put them all out there, and what they noticed was all the little kids were hovered around the school outside. They didn't play out in the yard. And so they did it again, and they put a fence up out there. And what they noticed was all the little kids played right up to the fence line. I mean, they were all out there right along the fence line. And what they discovered was that there was so much security in those kids by setting those boundaries, by telling them how far they could go and setting that boundary. They were more secure And don't you see that with your kids, that when you set that boundary, they need those boundaries. That's security for them. And when we don't tell them what we'll allow, what we won't allow, there's not security in that. That is really kind of loving them more to do that. So why do we not set boundaries? Boundaries are worthless if they're not followed up with consequences. You might as well not do it. Consequences are key as far as I'm concerned, and that's from my past experience. Sometimes we don't because we're people pleasers or we're, we feel guilty or we haven't hurt with our, dealt with our own issues. Maybe we're fearful. We're fearful they're not going to like us. We won't be their friend. Sometimes we confuse helping with enabling, and I think that's exactly what we did. We, we thought we were helping, and what we were doing was really enabling, and that led to a lot of issues. Um, maybe we just didn't trust God. Maybe we just thought that he wouldn't protect our children or we thought that our children were just really incapable of being responsible. And when we do and do and do for them, what we're telling them is that we just don't think you can do it. And that's got to make them feel pretty crummy. Um, but I did that. So um, how did God model boundaries? I mean, I want you to know that we believe this is biblical, that God is a boundary setter. Um, because God, three distinct and separate entities. He was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they each have their own distinct jobs. God communicates well what he likes and what he dislikes, what he will allow, what he won't allow, what he thinks and what his heart is. That's in his word. And God confronts sin, and does he not allow consequences? I can't help but think of Adam and Eve. Think about Adam and Eve in Genesis. Did God not set a boundary there when he said, don't eat from that tree? And what did Adam do? He ate from the tree. And what happened? Major consequence. I mean, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, I commanded you not to eat from. And I said, don't eat from that tree. The very ground is cursed because of you. That was a major boundary. And there's a major, we're all suffering that consequence today, are we not? Yes. I mean, God is a boundary setter. I truly believe that this is what he desires. Hebrews 12.4 is a great verse on discipline. You all probably know all the discipline verses. There's so many in Proverbs. But my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline or lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is, God is treating you as sons. He's saying this is the most loving thing you can do. For what son not, is not disciplined by his earthly father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and you're not true sons. God is telling us that the way we love our children is by disciplining them, by setting boundaries, allowing consequences. I believe that's his way. Um, Townsend and Cloud said this, if we're trying to do his work for him, God's work, we will fail. If we're wishing for him to do our work for us, he's going to refuse. But if we do our work and God does his work, 
then we will find strength in a real relationship with our Creator. And I believe that's so true. Okay, real important in this is the law of reaping and sowing. Um, you all know Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please his spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Just as we interfere with the law of gravity, if we catch a tumbling glass off the table, we interfere with the law of reaping and sowing when we interfere with natural consequences. Um, let the sower do the reaping. The consequences should be theirs, not ours. Um, you cannot teach responsibility without learning that you have to reap what you sow. And, and it's straight from the word. You know, my husband always says, when your children are little, the consequences are so much less severe than when they're older. So there were times when we wished we could take a birthday party away from our child. Like, we wish we could say, oh, you know, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. So the consequences, you can't go to your best friend's birthday party today. And oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's horrible. But oh my gosh, that, you know, the consequence there is, is a cakewalk compared to when they're older. And it's, you know, you lose a job or you lose a wife or you, you go to jail, you go to prison, whatever. But we would die for a birthday party to take away. And, and then when the, the parent of their best friend calls and says, oh, but if they don't come, the party won't be the same, you know, and they've got to come. And to stand firm and say, we have to follow through on this. It hurts a little bit, but, you know, next time they'll think about how they got that consequence. You know what I'm saying? I know you know all that, but I just have to tell you, I wish I'd been more consistent in that area, and I was inconsistent. I was weak in that, and looking back on it, I wish I hadn't been. Um, Hebrews 12:11. no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, though, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I think that says it so clearly. So how do we set that responsibility? How do we teach responsibility? To me, it's boundaries and consequences. Set those boundaries. Allow your children to fail and experience pain. It won't kill them. It's the best thing you can do. Enforce consequences. Trust God to work in you and your child. We can't expect our children to trust God if we're not trusting God. So um, also understand fully their usefulness and purpose through Scripture. Proverbs, I'm not going to go over all of those, but you know and read them. Proverbs is full of discipline verses. Um, spare the rod, hate the, whoever spares the rod hates his son. I already told you. Oh, did I tell you 2919 is our favorite? A servant cannot be corrected by mere words, though he understands he will not respond. Consequences are key. Talk, 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 but it won't do any good until you give consequences. So the other thing that I wish I'd done differently is I feel like I kind of idolized my children. It's easy to do, isn't it? We love them so much. And I had such a hard time having my children once I had them. I just wanted them like this, and I didn't want anything to happen to them, and I wanted it to be perfect, and I wanted them to be happy. And I think I idolized them. And looking back on that, I really wish I hadn't done that. Um, And I'll tell you why. Um, One of the talks I give in Prodigal on Tuesday nights is called Laying Your Isaac Down. And I'm sure you all know the story about Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac and how um, they waited. You know, God made the covenant with Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and make his descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham's part of the covenant was to be obedient to God. So, um, and he was. But when Abraham was uh, 100 and Sarah was 90, they had Isaac. And so God fulfilled his covenant with him. And um, Abraham was faithful. But... um, Oh, and I need to show, I'll show you the picture of them with their baby. Isn't that cute? Um, but once something happened, something happened that um, was really weird is after they had this child that they waited so long for, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And I can't imagine that. Can you imagine this child that you finally had and you're old and, and he's this little boy now, you know, I don't know, 12 maybe, and... God says, I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. Kill your son. And because Abraham was so faithful and he was so obedient and he trusted God fully, he takes him up to Mount Moriah with two of his servants and he takes his wood and he says to the servants, we'll return. Abraham knew that somehow God was going to keep his promise, but he didn't have a clue how, but he trusted God so fully 
that he knew that he would return with his son. And his, his son even said, Dad, where's the lamb? And he said, you know what? God will provide. So as he goes up and lays Isaac on the altar, and he's raising the sword, about to put it into his son, God calls him off at the very last possible moment. Well, Abraham passed the test. Um, God, there was a ram in the thicket that came out, and God had provided a substitutionary sacrifice, as he did for us with Jesus Christ. He was our, sex, our substitutionary sacrifice. He saved us. Um, but Abraham showed that he trusted God fully. He passed that test, and in a test it was. Um, he kept his promise with Abraham, and Abraham was faithful to God. So why did God do that? Why did he ask him to do that? God had to know that Abraham didn't, hadn't made his son an idol. Because he, he might have. He loved his son so much. I mean, I can't even imagine how much they loved him. But anything we choose or prioritize above God is an idol. And God makes it real clear in Deuteronomy 5, 8, 9 about how he feels about that. You shouldn't make yourself an idol in the form of anything or bow down to anything or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he had to know that the man that was going to be the leader of this great nation had no hindrances with idols. There should have been nothing between he and God. And the same is true with us. But God forced him to make a choice because he had to know. God's not saying that Abraham couldn't love Isaac. He's not saying you can't love your children. He's just saying, realign your priorities. Put me first. Put me first and then your children. And I, I didn't do that when I was raising my kids. I, I know, I truly believe that I made my son an idol especially. When, when I was dealing with his hardest times, it consumed me. I was consumed with um, trying to fix it and control it. And um, I, I can fix this. I can control this. Well, I really, I really couldn't. Um, and I remember, I remember where I was sitting when I was just crying out to God saying, God, I can't do this anymore. I need help. I've tried and tried to fix this. I've tried to control it. I've tried to change my son. I've tried to talk to him. We didn't like each other at the time. We were fighting. It was horrible. My husband and I never fought, but we fought all the time about this. It was just chaos in our home, and that's what happens. And I finally said, God, I'm going to give him to you. I am going to give him to you. I really remember physically putting my hands out, and and like I'm giving him to and saying, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to trust you with my child. This child that I love so much, but I'm scared to death that he's going to die because he is in a destructive lifestyle. And you know what? Once I did that, I had this incredible peace that came over me. And I just, it took away all that control. And I remember I started, after I did that, I got up and I started walking up the stairs. But I was going, but God, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. And it's like God said to me, you don't have to trust him. Just trust me. Trust me. And from that time forward, I have. And it's been unbelievable because he is trustworthy. We can lay our children in his hands. They're his anyway. And he loves them even more than we do. It's hard to imagine. And I won't, I'm not going to read all this, but you've got it in your handout for the sake of time. But Tim Keller in the book Counterfeit Gods talks about this, about Abraham and Isaac so wonderfully, and I would suggest you read that. Um, and I'm really going to go quickly through this because I know I'm over time, but um, God had to know that Abraham didn't have any idols because he was going to make him into a great nation. We make idols out of our children. It can be money, whatever it is. We make idols. Um, but here's the most important thing. You've got to know God to trust him. You, you're not going to give your children to him if you don't know him. You're not going to leave your kids with a babysitter you don't know, are you? And you're not going to lay your children in the hands of a God you don't know. If you don't know him, I would encourage you to, if you're not in a Bible study, learn the word. Learn the word. That's where I went to BSF. I don't even know, know if I told you that. That's where I learned to fall in love with God and my Savior. Know him so you can lay your children in his hands. But you've got to know him first. And I want to tell you another thing. You can trust an unknown future to a known God. If you know him, you, there is, it, the future is unknown for any of our children.
But when you know God, you can trust that future to him. These are just verses on trust. You've got those. You probably know them. What happens when you don't have trust? You are a stress case, and that's what I was. I was driving my family crazy. I was driving my friends crazy. I was stressed out all the time because I was responsible for everything. If you don't trust God with the problem, then guess what? The solution is your burden, and that's, that's where I was. This is also a great, I'm not going to read this, but Francis Chan in the book Crazy Love talks about worry and how it implies that we don't trust God. It's really very arrogant, he says, so I'd encourage you to read that. And then just reasons why we have trouble giving our children to God. No, I'm sorry. This is what we get when we, we get peace. We get the power of faith. You see God mold you and shape you. Um, warning, there's not always going to be in the ram and the thicket. Something bad could happen. And we have to tell our prodigal parents that every Tuesday night. Your child may die. You're doing hard things. You're, you're letting go. We, we tell them, you've got to let go and let God. Get out of the way so God can work in your child's life. There's no guarantee your child's not going to die in a drug overdose or, a, or anything. But you've got to be obedient to God. There may not be that ram in the thicket. So, but God's still faithful and he's still sovereign. And you have a restored relationship with him. Um, you fulfill your God-given purpose. If it's to glorify God, you have done that. Um, This is another quote from Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods that's really good about um, how God, what what he did with Abraham. So in closing, ladies, like I said, there's no guarantees in in what the decisions and choices our children will make. There are no guarantees. I hope that um, anything that I've said here today will help you with your children and... um, I know you're. I know it's tough where you are right now. You're in the you're in the trenches right now. You've got babies. You've got little ones, and it's tiring. And when they get older, it's a different tired. You're physically tired now. When you when they're older, you're mentally exhausted and you're emotionally exhausted, and it's tough. But um, but there's nothing more rewarding. And I would encourage you to to have community. I don't know what we do without community. Never be afraid to share. I know I know it's embarrassing when you have a child that's making poor choices. But what we found is that there's no perfect child, there's no perfect parent, but we have a perfect God. And um, I just want to thank you all for letting me come here today. And I just hope that anything I've said has helped you and, um, and just that it might help you be more obedient to God, that you might be able to trust Him more. He is our only hope in this world, and it's tough out there. So thank you so much.